It was supposed to be a solo, Aaron. I'm sorry. I'm singing in the back. <laughs> Debbie was back there, and I'm sure she was thinking, oh, brother, just preach. <laughs> First Timothy chapter 4. First Timothy chapter 4. Thank you, Aaron. For those of you who do not know, uh, for a good while, Aaron was our worship leader and youth uh, minister, and um, he uh, went off to a foreign country um, <laughs> up north. Came back to Texas. It's always good when you have former staff members to come and rejoin your church. And uh, Aaron, uh, if you look at these students over here, that's a part of what you built, brother. You, you've laid a foundation for us, and we appreciate that very much, uh, for sure. First Timothy chapter 4, we're going to be reading a, uh, a passage in context, but we're going to be only handling one verse today. And so if your hope is that this will be a short sermon... <laughs> You will be sadly disappointed. Um, so let us pray and go to the Lord quickly. Ask for his spirit of discernment uh, over us today. Lord God, we do come before you as we preach your word. Pray God you would show us Christ. Lord, that you would remind us of the gospel. And that your Holy Spirit would stir our hearts up for a passionate love for you. Because you loved us. In your name we pray. Amen. This is our 17th week, I believe, in Timothy, in a sermon and series entitled For the Pastor for the Church. Uh, this letter is written by Paul, uh, and his audience is Timothy. That's who he wrote it to. Uh, but we know, uh, so we call that for the pastor, because it's written to a pastor, and it's a obviously intended for pastors, and yet it, Paul reminds Timothy to teach this to the church, and therefore we also have entitled it for the church. Paul has not minced words up to this point. He has tackled a great deal of false teaching that is occurring in the church in Ephesus. He knows his young protege is battling this. He wants to remind him to stay faithful uh, to uh, solid doctrine, reminds him of what that doctrine is, reminds him of the false doctrines out there, uh, reminds him of his responsibility to appoint elders, uh, to work with deacons, uh, and then reminds himself uh, that, or reminds Timothy that there will be people who depart from the faith uh, because they were never a part of the faith, reminds them that there will be people who try to teach Jesus is enough, but you need a few other things. Uh, he reminds them that that is a teaching from demons. That should cause many of us in our denominations to cringe a little bit. And then he uh, tackled, as we said last week, this idea of training yourself for godliness. And we spent some time on the idea that Timothy, trained by Paul, Timothy was trained by Paul. Like, <laughs> just let that settle over you for a moment. Timothy was trained by Paul, and yet Paul told him to continue training for godliness. That's why we're here today. You understand that, right? That's why I'm here today. That's why you're here today. It's to be trained for godliness. And then... In this context, he's going to drop a fairly controversial verse upon the church and upon Timothy. Um, 
And if I was not an expositional preacher who worked my way through books, I would most certainly skip this verse. Um, but unfortunately, we're going to have to deal with it. But let's take it in context. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, regarding good doctrine, that is, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith, of the good doctrine that you have followed, have nothing to do with irreverent silliness. Rather train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Paul, Paul, Paul. <laughs> oh, boy. So, obviously, the difficult part of verse 10 is the idea that God, through Christ, is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And we will tackle that in just a moment, but let's tackle the beginnings of this passage first. After Paul lays down this understanding to Timothy that we must be trained for godliness, it is a constant thing to be trained for godliness. It's important. Because bodily training, as we said last week, is of some value, and all those of you who do not work out on a regular basis should say amen there. Okay. Amen. You can always remind those people who get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to go to the gym, you can look at them and say, well, that's got a little value to it. <laughs> but godliness has eternal value. So after saying all that to Timothy, he then comes back and adds this idea. For to this, this idea of training for godliness, for, for to this end we toil and strive. We toil and strive. And there's a lot of things you could do with this text, and I'm limited in the time I have today. Um, not really, <laughs> but nevertheless. <laughs> but clearly Paul would understand more than others, and Timothy would probably understand more than others, what Paul meant by toiling and striving for godliness. Paul had suffered for the gospel, and he had called all of the believers... You will suffer for the gospel. If this is what you're signing up for, you're going to suffer. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. And I'm telling you, you're going to have to train for godliness. Although you are holy in God's sight because of Christ, you nevertheless will have to train while you're in this life for godliness. If you've walked with the Lord long enough, You've had those moments where you have had to choose between godliness and sin. You still feel the effects of this fallen world. And so Paul tells Timothy, for to this end we toil and strive. This word toil literally means to grow weary, to make oneself tired. And we are not talking about making oneself tired by trying to earn God's love. No, 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 that's not what we're talking about. But we are talking about passionately pursuing godliness. That because God loves you, 
when you did not deserve to be loved, that the greatest way that we reflect our love back to God is to live as he calls us to live. And that, if you have walked with Christ long, can cause you to grow weary. can be a tiresome thing. And then Paul uses an athletic word that Paul likes to use often. He likes to use these athletic metaphors, but he uses this word, strive. The strive in the Greek means to enter a contest, to contend for something, to battle for something. I'm I'm called then to toil, to grow weary in contending for godliness. That's not preached much anymore. But it is the calling upon our lives as believers that we are to pursue godliness and to toil and strive for it. When was the last time you were exhausted from toiling and striving for godliness? When was the last time you studied your Bible till you were tired? If you're like me, 43 seconds. How many have ever fallen asleep while reading scripture? How many have ever fallen asleep while praying? You're like, Lord, I'm so glad I'm, I'm committing this time to you to pray. And you're out like a light. When was the last time you attempted to memorize scripture until your brain was tired? When was the last time you struggled with a difficult passage of scripture? And, and here's what I mean by struggle. That you read it and you didn't immediately go to the commentary. Because you know what the commentary is, right? It's someone else's opinion of what that says. When was the last time that you read a passage of Scripture and thought about it and struggled with it? When was the last time you battled against a hidden sin? Or maybe when was the last time you brought it to life by sharing it with someone else who could hold you accountable? You said, I'm bringing it outside. I'm going to show it up in my life. Here it is. Here's my struggle. And I need you to help me with you. If you've ever done that, that's toiling and striving. That is not easy. And do we as believers today, do we see our Christian walk as serious enough that you would contend for it? Years ago, Christmas Eve, I was still working as a police officer. And I was dispatched to Toys R Us. Um, for a fight in progress. I'm not Christmas Eve. It was the day after Thanksgiving. <laughs> Black Friday. I remember getting the call on my computer screen, and it said two. What it said? Two school teachers involved in a brawl. And I'm like, well, this should be interesting. <laughs> Me and my other partner, we drove up, and there they were, battling out in the parking lot because somebody, one of the other teachers from a Longview High School, uh, had gotten in the way of somebody, I believe, from Pine Tree High School, and by golly, that was not happening, yet I was in line before you, and a battle was raging. I get out of the car, and I literally got out of the car, and I looked, and I said, you can't be serious. And they all got quiet. I said, are y'all really fighting? And they said, I was in this place first. I said, what are y'all here for? 
We're here for, I don't remember, some, some toy, some doll or something. The manager was outside. He, the doors weren't open yet. He was trying to get everybody to calm down. There was like a hundred people in line. I thought, y'all are all morons. That's what I wanted to say. But I knew that wouldn't be what Jesus would say. But it is what I thought. You ever had those moments? And I said, are y'all really fighting? This is, I mean, it was a contest. They were striving and toiling for the next spot in line. And I finally asked the manager, how many of these toys do you have? And they said, like, 125. I was like, you're going to get one! You're sixth and you're seventh. Like, you're going to be able to... You're going to have one. I said, or I can take y'all all to jail, and then you won't get one at all. And they decided that they would not go to jail, which I was thrilled with because I didn't want to do any paperwork. But anyway, we have this idea of what it means to strive and contend for things. If you have brothers and sisters, you have strived and contended for things. But do you think about your faith that way? Do you look at your faith in Christ and say, I'm going to contend for this. I'm going to strive for this. I'm going to battle for this. Notice what Paul tells Timothy. You've got to strive and contend for godliness. And then he gives his motivation. For this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. Where is our hope set? On the living God. Because our hope is set on the living God, because that is where we have our faith placed, we should know as I'm sure young Timothy had learned by now, that people would not like that. And this world would not like that. Because of your hope and where you have it placed, you will have to contend, toil, and strive for it. And I will tell you today that if your hope is set on anything other than the living God, you will be disappointed. For those of you who are married, who were married or who dated while phones were out, I mean, I know there are some people might be who didn't have phones, I don't know. But if you remember phones, what are you laughing about, Keith? I'm not talking about you, brother. (laughs) Some of you may have had phones, you may remember talking to your girlfriend or boyfriend for hours and then saying things like, you hang up, no, I hang up, you hang up, you hang up. Remember those? And you thought, if I could just be with this person forever, everything will be wonderful. I don't know how long into your marriage that you were disappointed. For my wife, it was about 1.2 seconds before I'm sure my wife went, what have I done? But if your hope is placed upon your spouse, you will be disappointed. If your hope is placed upon money and financial resources, you will be disappointed. Got a story for that one, but I'm not going to tell it. Some of you know that. If your heart is set and hope is set on good health, you're going to be disappointed. But if your hope is set upon the living God, you will not be disappointed. 
And because of that, because of where our hope is set, you can toil and strive with confidence. Whereas if you toil and strive for anything else, it can slip through your fingers. And then we come to the part that I wish Paul may not have written. Yes, I know he was inspired. But if you've ever had to preach, you sometimes wish maybe, I don't know, I have questions for Paul when I get to heaven. Like, seriously? Like, were you, were you limited on words, brother? You could have explained it. I don't, I don't know. Somehow, I'm probably heretical there, but moving right along. He says, we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people. Especially those who believe. So, let me tell you why we're going to spend one week on this one verse. Because I want to make sure that you understand. I'm never going to assume that you know this. I want to drill this deeply into you. The Bible is not teaching universalism. It is not teaching universalism. Now, if you don't know what that term is, I want to help you understand. Universalism is not the universal church. I've heard people mix those up. The universal church is an ex- is this. It means that um, all the believers in all denominations. Now, if you're a hardcore Baptist in here, you may be like, there are believers in other denominations? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, But there are other believers in other denominations, and all of those believers make up the, the universal church. But universalism means that everybody will be saved. Nobody goes to hell. There's different versions of this. It's not a new doctrine. It's been around for centuries. And I want you to know as a church that it is, it is preached by people right now in our country who are good preachers. That's true. They're good preachers. They communicate really, really, really well. But at the end of the day, they believe that everybody eventually comes to know Christ. And I want you to know that is not true. And how do we know that? Because, well, the Bible says that it's not true. One of the best ways to interpret the Bible is to look at other parts of the Bible. And so I'm just going to give you a few. We won't spend a lot of time here. I know I'm limited. Matthew 7, 13 through 23. Jesus speaking. Jesus, God with flesh on, might be kind of an important one, right? I mean, he's going to tell you a little bit here. So I just want to make sure you understand that this is Jesus talking. I recognize that he's talking all through the Bible. Some of you doctrinal people, you'll be like, I know, I know where you were going. Just want to make sure you understand that Jesus is speaking in reference to this. He says this in verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy, that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are what? Many. Many will enter the wrong gate and will be destroyed. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are what? Many will go through the wrong gate. Few will find Christ. That's what Jesus said. He might know something. And he says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
Thus you will recognize it by their fruits. And then in probably, in all sincerity, the scariest passage in all of the Bible is what Jesus is going to say beginning in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Not who? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I just want to rephrase it. Make sure you understand that. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So when you hear this doctrine that all will come to know Christ, just understand that Christ disagrees. Because that's what he said. So when you look at 1 Timothy 4.10, which is often used by those who preach universalism as pointing that Christ will save everybody, you need to understand that it's not what the Bible is teaching. Now there are many, many other examples in the New Testament, and we won't go there for that, but prove that this is not what Paul is saying to Timothy. So what does it mean? Well, let's look at some of the more popular possibilities. I will try not to bore you with too much history or Greek work. One reasonable interpretation is that Paul is pointing out the unity of the gospel for the Jews and the Gentiles. You need to understand how Jews felt. The Jews believed that they were the chosen people of God and no one else could come to the gospel. And so they did not distinguish, or they did distinguish between themselves and all other people. One commentator said it this way. It must be borne in mind that there were many Hebrews still in every Christian congregation at this time who still clung with passionate zeal to the old loved Hebrew thought that Messiah's work of salvation was limited to the chosen race of the Jews. This and similar sayings were specifically meant to set aside forever these narrow and selfish conceptions of the Redeemer's will. They were intended to show these exclusive children of Israel that Christ's work would stretch over a greater and grander platform than Israel could ever seal. So it's one idea that when he says all, he's speaking to Timothy, making sure that he understands that all is the Jews and the Gentiles. That after all is called the mystery of the gospel. That the gospel is meant from, for the Gentiles. The second idea is that Christ is the Savior of all men. Meaning there is no one else that men could be saved by. He is the only one who can save all men. He is the Savior of all men. The potential to be saved is there for all men. But only those who believe are truly Saved. Not too long ago in 1 Timothy 2, we dealt with this. Or in first we didn't, we dealt with this recently in 1 Timothy in chapter 2, 3 through 6. It says this. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper Time. So that could be what it means. Number three, could mean that they are saved from the immediate wrath of God, but not the future wrath of God. In some ways, 
God does want all to come to faith, yet we know that not all will come to faith. And right now, depending on what doctrinal camp you're in, you just went crazy. <laughs> what? I'm just telling you, just telling you a tear. Yet even those who are not repenting are in some manner saved in the temporary sense from God's full judgment now. Let me help you understand something. If God wanted to, he would be perfectly justified to wipe everybody out instantly. Yeah. You could say, well, I disagree. Well, it wouldn't matter because he would be dead. <laughs> he would be justified in doing that. And the fact that you're at all breathing as an unbeliever is in some measure being rescued from the immediate wrath of God. We see a little bit of this in Romans chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So one argument in this text is they are rescued temporarily from the future wrath of God that they are storing up. Number four, all men receive some level of common grace from God. All men receive some level of common grace. Common grace would be uh, in the idea that if you are an unbeliever and you get a cold and you go to the doctor and they provide antibiotics for you and you get healthy, um, can you do that? I don't know if you can. Maybe I don't know virus. I don't know what that is. But if you get if you get healthy, that is common grace given to you to get healthy. Plain and simple. So we know this from the scriptures. God provides food. We see that in Psalms 105 or 104, 27, 28. He provides sunlight and rainfall on the righteous and the unrighteous. Matthew chapter 5. He provides life and breath to all things. Acts 17. And for in him we live and move and have our being. Acts 17, 28. God preserves, delivers, and supplies the needs of all of those who live in this world. And in some sense... And the idea that even unbelievers are provided this common grace, they are in some ways saved. There are several other possibilities as well, but I think we've provided enough for you to ponder. But I'm sure your question now is, what do you think, Pastor? I land somewhere... <laughs> Between it's saying that all men, Jews and Gentiles, are included in the plan of salvation, because that is the mystery of the gospel, and the idea of being rescued from the immediate wrath of God. That's, that's probably where I'll end. So let, let me help you out what that really means. I don't fully know. I don't know. I don't completely know. Had a wonderful time in Minnesota this week. I was in Minnesota working and had an opportunity to listen to Bob Utley, my old ETBU professor that I took Old Testament survey one and two from. He taught a 
Bible interpretation course. And I found myself in the first 20 minutes in my hotel room going, yes, yes, in reference to the camps that we as Christians have put ourselves in. And after listening to that, I pondered for a little while and I recognized that there is a pressure upon pastors to know it all. And I don't. I don't know at all. And what makes me really nervous as a pastor is that there seems to be a shortage of other pastors who will say the words, I don't know. There's mystery there. There's just mystery. Now look, we come down firmly on primary doctrines. And we should absolutely know, unequivocally know, the primary doctrines like the virgin birth, the single life of Christ, the death, the physical resurrection of Christ, the physical return of Christ, that salvation is through faith alone, through Christ alone. The primary beliefs that are foundation to the gospel are non-negotiable. After that, all bets are off. Because there's lots of opinions. And I can't wait to get to heaven because I think all the pastors are going to be like, all right, so this text... Who's right? And like, somebody's going to be right and everybody else is going to be wrong. More likely what will be is we will all be wrong and we will all have missed it. There is mystery in the Bible. For instance, I absolutely believe in the virgin birth. But I don't fully understand that. I absolutely believe in it, but I don't fully understand that. There's all kinds of parts of the scripture. That I don't fully understand. And if you do, I would love to hear from you. As would a whole bunch of dead guys who studied the word of God much longer than you probably did. Who also didn't fully know. God is not like us. And it shouldn't surprise us that there is mystery and will always be mystery this side of heaven. So what's the primary purpose? How many of y'all, I mean, you don't have to raise your hand. That might freak me out. (laughs) Does that make you nervous when a pastor says, I don't fully know? Let me help you out on something. I go to pastor's conferences, and you know what we talk about after the meeting? Pastors that we don't know. So if you sit under a pastor who pretends to know it all, he is lying to you. Because we call each other during the week and go, hey, what do you, what do you think about 1 Timothy 14? <laughs> we don't fully know it all. And I hope that doesn't cause you to be nervous about a pastor such as me, who will say, I don't don't fully understand that. But I know it doesn't affect the gospel. I know it doesn't affect the gospel. Nor do I say, not to chase a rabbit, as I heard Ben say, not to chase a rabbit too far. Uh, I do believe the study of doctrine is good and is useful and should be passionately pursued. I am not saying that you go to a scripture and say, well, I don't know, so who cares? It's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is just be careful saying, I'm right without a doubt, and everybody else is wrong about something that is not primary to the Christian faith. Let's finish this up. It's 11.31. Matt and Lucas, who are getting ready to go to youth camp, are probably going to start giving me bad looks. Here's the ending of this verse. He is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. Here's one great definition. Here's one great explanation of the last part of this text is do you believe? Do you believe? If you believe in this 
truth. If you believe that you needed to repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ and that you are toiling and striving for godliness because the power of the Holy Spirit is driving you for godliness, I've got great news for you. Your hope is not misplaced. That was a terrible amen. Your hope is not misplaced. You're going to be rescued. Yes. That is such good news. We hope, believers, those of us who believe, we hope in the living God. And I don't care what happens tomorrow or what happens today. Our hope is not misplaced and it will not be disappointed. We do not toil and strive for godliness and hope that it all works out. This is not, as I have said before, I hope the Cowboys win the Super Bowl. Because I can assure you, having been a longtime fan, they will not. <laughs> but I can assure you this, that God says, when I repent and believe in the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ for my sins, that my hope will not be disappointed. True. And that is good news. In the text today is the DNA of the gospel all over it. That he rescues those who believe. And in some ways, I cannot help but see the missional aspect of this text as well. If you believe in that hope, if that hope that you have causes you joy, if that hope that you have gives you energy to toil and strive for godliness, if that hope that you have provides you contentment, why would we keep that to ourselves? Would we not want to tell all men of the opportunity to come to Christ? And I don't care what theological camp you land in. You should land in this one. I want to proclaim the gospel to all. That's what I want to do. And let God do the work that I know he will do. We have a hope that will not disappoint. Students, as you go off to a missional camp... You will be doing a part of this verse. You will be living out in front of others by the power of the Holy Spirit the hope that those of you who are redeemed have in the living God. That you have been rescued from your sins. And I pray that you would walk that out in power in front of those who desperately need to be rescued. Here's the gospel in closing. As we do every week. I hope you never grow tired of it. Besides, it's a good mark of when I'm about to be done. (laughs) Here's the gospel. You were born into sin. No one had to teach you how to sin. You sin naturally and really well. And that sin separated you from a holy, holy, holy God. And though you richly and justifiably deserve to be punished and destroyed... Instead, God, because of the great love he had for you, sent Christ, his son, 
to take your punishment on the cross that you deserved. And those who know they need to be rescued, those who have ears that hear and would cry out, I need a Savior, that if you repent and you believe, Christ will save you. And your life will never be the same again. That is the gospel. And there are always people who say, why don't you do invitations? And and I'm not opposed to invitations. We may occasionally have invitations, but here's why I don't like to have them regularly in our church. It's because I need you to understand there's nothing magical that happens by taking my hand. There is nothing magical about repeating certain words. There is power, however, in you repenting and believing. And that can happen there or in your car. And people say, well, how would I know whether or not I came to Christ? Let me tell you how you will know you have come to Christ. Because you will toil and strive for godliness the rest of your days. Because the power of the Holy Spirit resides in you. And He will push you toward holiness. If there is no striving for godliness in your life, then I would fear that you may not know Christ. So if you're here today and you say, I want to know Him, I would tell you what the Bible says repeatedly. Repent and believe. As Keith comes for us to worship, I just want to remind you to live out what we have preached today. Be confident of your hope and that it would come out in the way you walk in this fallen world. Let's pray. Lord God, I do thank you for your word. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit will bring forth from our hearts fruit that it changes us and affects this world that we live in. Maybe, may we be regularly reminded from your word and by your spirit of the hope that we have in you. And may we be driven to talk about that hope to others. In your name we pray. Amen.